This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. I need to apologize in advance for my uh, raspy voice. Apparently 1,100 miles of motorcycle riding across this fine state of California has left me a bit windburned and sunburned. And there may be a bit of a summer virus involved too. But at any rate, I'll do the best I can. Bear with me. In our second segment today, we'll be talking about that always important topic of plant pathology. And I know that sounds funny to say, but uh, basically, civilization depends upon food. We can talk about the crisis on Wall Street, but if we had a crisis in food production and agriculture, the world would really be in trouble. Turns out, of course, that UC Davis is one of the premier universities across the world in dealing with matters of agriculture. So it's not necessarily surprising that a UC Davis plant pathologist recently won a five-year, $975,000 development award from the National Science Foundation to support research and science education related to plants' innate immune responses. So it is in segment two, we'll speak to the award recipient, Dr. Gita Coker, assistant professor in the Department of Plant Pathology, who will apparently use these funds to research proteins involved in disease-fighting immune responses of plants. Now, as a medical doctor, I realize I don't know much about how plants respond to attacks, and certainly they're attacked like, uh, like animals are. And so though, while you, maybe you haven't thought about it, dear listener, this actually is an important topic, we're going to kick it around in our second segment. Stay tuned for that. But let us begin today's program as we like to do with On This Date in History. Our date today is the 25th of August. And it was, in fact, on August 25th in the year 325 that the first General Council of Nicaea, which is in modern-day Turkey, established the doctrine of the Holy Trinity and attempted to standardize the date of Easter. And uh, for those not familiar with this religious concept, the Holy Trinity refers to the fact that God is of three parts, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And although I did attend many sessions of catechism as a boy, I'm still a little bit unclear on the Holy Spirit part. I do know that later on, during the Inquisition, that it was a capital offense to doubt the Trinity. And as far as the standardization of the date of Easter goes, well, <laughs> apparently the Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholics still haven't been able to come to an agreement on that one, almost 17 centuries later. And it was on August 25th in 1580... According to our reference volume, Today in History, Spanish forces defeat the Portuguese at the Battle of Alcantara, and as a result, Portugal was, quote, secured, unquote, for Spain. However, when I looked up this battle on Wikipedia, it describes it as a Portuguese victory. So any historians out there, help us out with this one. Drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com and clarify this matter. I'm going with the Spaniards. Well, thank you, Mr. McMillan. Uh, Spain did temporarily, uh, quote, secure, unquote, uh, I guess you'd say, over Portugal, but it didn't last. And uh, don't use an awe sound effect to that. Under Spanish benign neglect, we Portuguese pretty much lost our empire. Can I use one there? No. And on the 25th of August in 1829, Mexico refuses U.S. President Andrew Jackson's offer to buy Texas. 
By the way, sometime in the weeks to come, we'll be speaking with Mark Stein, the author of How These States Got Their Shapes. And that's not so easy to say. But uh, he has some interesting stories in there about the state of Texas, Sam Houston, John Sutter, and all kinds of fun stuff. But to continue, on August 25th in 1875, Matthew Webb, an English merchant Navy captain, became the first known person to successfully swim unaided across the English Channel. Captain Webb accomplished the grueling 21-mile crossing, which actually entailed 39 miles of swimming because of tides and currents, in 21 hours, 45 minutes. And uh, as something of an open-water swimmer, having done the Golden Gate twice, all I can say is 39 miles in 22 hours means the currents were helping you, not hindering. And speaking of swimming, on this date in 1820 in Antwerp, Belgium, Ethelda Bleibtree became the first woman to win an event in the United States Olympics competition as she set a 100-meter freestyle swim world record of 1 minute 13 seconds. And finally, on August 25th of 1993, the Egyptian cleric Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman was indicted by U.S. federal grand jury on charges of terrorist activities, including the planning of the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center in New York City. As we approach the 10th anniversary of the September 11th attacks, we'll be talking a little bit about that event, in particular some of the curious lapses that took place before that tragic day. Our quote of the day comes from the immortal John Locke, who once said, The actions of men are the best interpreters of their thoughts. Our quips of the day come from Jimmy Kimmel who said, I guess about a month or two ago, the United States soccer team lost to Japan, which means we're now losing to Japan in math, science, and penalty kicks. To which he added, a lot of guys say women's soccer is boring, but actually, all soccer is boring. And please, save your hate mail. All right, for our jokes today, we're going to turn once again to the Dave Barry classic calendar. And some days ago in the calendar, Dave said, Public restrooms should be clearly marked with signs that say men or women. If there have to be symbols instead of words, the man symbol should clearly be a man, and the woman symbol should clearly be a woman wearing a giant, unattractive A-line-style skirt. Theme restaurants should not use cutesy names like Sheila's, Caballeros, Colleen's, Galoots, etc., nor should they use ambiguous drawings that can be misunderstood in dim lighting by a person who's had a couple of vodka gimlets and thus finds himself barging into a ladies' room. Not that I've done that more than twice. They've also added alarming fact about traffic. In the past year alone, commuters whose car radios were tuned to classic rock spent an average of 347 hours, that's more than two weeks, just listening to the song Taking Care of Business by Bachman Turner Overdrive. Our stat of the day is going to be a little bit longer than typical because it's a little bit more complicated bit of statistics than usual, but I think it's worth it. The stat in question, by the way, is $65 billion. The story behind it is that the second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals concluded last week that investors who lost billions of dollars in Bernard Madoff's massive multi-decade fraud are not entitled to recover fake profits. Yes, although it's hard to believe this can actually happen, we're talking about an American court of law here, where, let's face it, pretty much anything goes. 
Apparently, lawyers representing investors argued before the Court of Appeals that their clients should receive more than what they initially gave to Madoff. The second U.S. Circuit Court ruled that a trustee's calculation of investors' losses was, quote, legally sound, unquote, and that a bankruptcy court was correct when it rejected these arguments. A three-judge panel of the Manhattan Court said customer statements showing that initial investments of about $17 billion had ballooned to more than $65 billion, quote, reflect impossible transactions and the trustees not obligated to step into the shoes of the defrauder or treat the customer statements as reflections of reality, unquote. I love this part. Helen Davis Chaitman, who argued the case for investors, said the Second Circuit ruling will destroy investor confidence in the capital markets because investors will no longer trust that they will recover their money if cheated. And no, we have no idea where these mysterious billions of dollars were supposed to magically appear from to pay back the investors. This may prove to be yet another example where investors need to be wary about being defrauded, in this case by lawyers. All right, let's see if we can't jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for thinking better of it. After a peacock that had escaped New York's Central Park Zoo spent the night on a ledge of a nearby apartment building watching the teeming city below. According to zoo spokespeople, it flew home at sunrise. As far as we can tell, that peacock took a look around the New York City environment and decided it was safer to be inside a cage. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for airport screening with the revelation that a transgendered airport screener has won a settlement from the TSA because she was forced to pat down male passengers. Ashley Yang said that since she is now a willowy, long-haired female, she should have been assigned to searching other women. Instead, supervisors ordered her to frisk surprised male passengers, sparking comments such as, Does this mean you're going to buy me dinner? And finally, it was an ugly week last week for sexual freedom with the news that a Virginia man was arrested after he allegedly burgled a porn shop and was found attempting sexual relations with an inflatable woman. Apparently, police were called to the break-in at 2.45 a.m. and found the glass front door shattered. A police dog then led them into the shop's interior where Justin Dale Little Jim... And that apparently is his name, Justin Dale Little Jim, age 28, was found in flagrante delecto with a blow-up doll. Said store manager Jerry Poe, It's sad. Our stuff is reasonably priced. Anyone can come in here and purchase it. But we can't wait to see how the manufacturer spins that one into an advertising campaign. Our dolls are so good, you won't want to wait. All right, from our letters to the editor department, uh, we did receive a call back from our bicycling correspondent, Mr. Paul Dorn. We did an extended invitation to Paul over the story about the Vilnius Lithuania mayor driving a tank over a car that had parked in the bike lane. Paul wrote to say, yes, I'm aware of the story, which he apparently posted to his uh, Facebook page. If you're a friend of Paul's, I guess you can look that up there said, I really don't know much more than what was shared in this tree hugger blog. It's clearly a staged PR stunt, but makes a pretty strong argument. 
I hope it raised awareness enough to clear the parked cars. It certainly got tons of coverage. Thanks, Paul. I have to say, who among us has not wished at some point they had a tank to accomplish their purposes while driving? This correspondent, as mentioned at the top of the show, recently did 1,100 miles driving across uh, beautiful California last week. And I have to say, even slightly better than having a tank that you can drive over a parked car is having a motorcycle so you can pass a bonehead driving too slow, say, on Highway 1. I'd pretty much given up for years uh, driving uh, around California during July and August because there's so many out-of-state morons driving on uh, small country roads in the foothills and along our coast, driving, you know, like they drive back in Nebraska, which my understanding is usually involves pulling over and stopping before you enter the freeway. Because after all, you have to look and see whether any cars are coming. But in a motorcycle, this is not an issue. You can pass. And, and I would recommend, dear listener, that uh, yes, although they are dangerous, um, I think we'd have a lot fewer Prozac prescriptions being written in this nation of ours if people were out in the fresh air. That includes bicycles and motorcycles. And while you're at it, some good long walks in the country. But speaking of holiday activities, we have to also quote this great letter to The Economist. It was written by Patrick O'Sullivan, described as Professor of Business Ethics at the Grenoble École de Management in Grenoble, France, who wrote that he was residing in Cannes for August. Sir, in a manner typical of so many essentially jealous Britons and Americans with their meager holiday entitlements... You asserted with barely concealed glee that to deal with the recurring financial crises, the, quote, first thing, unquote, European leaders should do is, quote, get off the beach, unquote. A much more Mediterranean view would say, why should we interrupt our holidays simply because of continuing shenanigans in the financial markets? If nothing else, recent events have shown that no matter what governments or central bankers do, the markets will continue to behave in a hysterical frenzy, moved above all by what Keynes termed animal spirits. Perhaps it does not matter much what politicians do, so they might as well go on holiday. Or even better, the traders should calm down and also head for the beach. To which we say, well said, Dr. O'Sullivan. All right, in the world at large, it certainly appears that Libya is dominating the headlines as the insurgent forces have marched into Tripoli. This, of course, is uh, hard to interpret as things are evolving. We'll have to wait a week or two and sound off on that topic, and you can bet that we will. We're also amused from the headlines to note that they had a big earthquake back on the eastern seaboard, shocking everyone from apparently North Carolina to New England. A 5.8 or 5.9, whatever it was, sounds like a pretty respectable shake. Apparently caused authorities in our nation's capital to uh, close down the Washington Monument, which does have some cracks in it. Let's do a few news items that aren't necessarily off of page one, like this one from the New York Times. According to David Tuller, It's no surprise for bisexual men that a new report indicates that they exist. (laughs) Quoting the article, In an unusual scientific about-face, researchers at Northwestern University have found evidence that at least some men who identify themselves as bisexual are, comma, in fact, comma, sexually aroused by both women and men. The finding is not likely to surprise bisexuals who have long asserted that attraction often is not limited to one sex. But for many years, the question of bisexuality has bedeviled scientists. A widely publicized study published in 2005, also by researchers at Northwestern, reported that, quote, with respect to sexual arousal and attraction, it remains to be shown that male bisexuality exists, end quote. That conclusion outraged bisexual men and women 
who said it appeared to support a stereotype of bisexual men as closeted homosexuals. I'm afraid there's little that I can add to this particular controversy except to note that if people claim to be bisexual, I think I'd take them at their word. All right, we have often been complimentary on this program about some of our local publications, the Sacramento Bee, part of the McClatchy News Organization, as well as our independent uh, Sacramento News and Review. I will again compliment the Bee for its uh, special uh, on Saturday, August 14th, a piece by Kim Alexander, president and founder of the California Voter Foundation. Kim's been on this show several times. In this piece, she talked about uh, how we should celebrate our initiative process by improving its transparency, which is quite a far cry from uh, a piece to the B by John Burton, who, which was titled, State's Broken Initiative Process Demands Reform. I'm a lot more sympathetic with Kim's viewpoint on this, and we'll hopefully bring her on the show in the next week or two to, uh, to talk about her excellent piece. Uh, the idea of the initiative process, and uh, there was a... Another opinion piece on this very topic last uh, August 3rd by William Endicott, described as the former deputy managing editor of The Bead, describing how misinformation has been dominating the initiative process. And, of course, uh, we've been sitting on a piece by Stuart Leavenworth uh, written about how, quote, Hollywood hustlers have kidnapped Hiram Johnson's ballot issue brainchild. That was uh, written back in the time that uh, Rob Reiner and Arnold Schwarzenegger were getting involved. Anyway, we'll talk with Kim about that hopefully in the weeks to come. I, I do think that people like John Burton, professional politicians, hate the fact that we have an initiative process here in California, and indeed, it can be misused. Amazon.com is currently trying to use our initiative process to make sure that they don't have to face any taxation for items that you buy from them if you live here in California. Anyway, that's all we're going to say about that today. But I definitely want to give an attaboy to the B for their page one article on August 16th by Nancy Youssef, Dateline, Washington, Washington D.C., noting how the cost of our two wars in Asia now are hard to pin down. It's worth noting, as does the article, that because of the government's complex budgeting process and incomplete record-keeping, no one really knows the total cost to the United States for wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And the article listed some measures of the price tag. What strikes me is the costs per month. Iraq has apparently wound down from the $2 billion a week it was costing $2 or $3 billion a week at the height of the war down to only $3.5 billion per month, which, my goodness, is a bargain at only like $900 million a week, whereas our ongoing war in Afghanistan continues to cost $6.2 billion, that's billion with a B, per month. Taken together, we're knocking on the door of $10 billion every month. But noted the article, when congressional cost cutters meet later this year to decide on trimming the federal budget, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq could represent juicy targets. But how much do the wars actually cost the U.S. taxpayer? Nobody really knows. Yes, Congress has allotted $1.3 trillion for war spending through fiscal year 2011, just to the Defense Department alone. There are. Long Pentagon spreadsheets that outline how much of that war was spent on personnel, transportation, fuel, and other costs. But all those numbers are incomplete. The article notes that besides what Congress appropriated, the Pentagon spent an additional unknown amount from its $5.2 trillion base budget over that same period. The article notes that this ripple effect have cost the U.S. $3.7 trillion, more than $12,000 for each and every one of us. And that's another topic we will return to. On a somewhat happier military note, uh, we would uh, point out that we picked up 
thanks to the fire sale currently starting over at Borders, a copy of Uncle John's Bathroom Reader salutes the armed forces. Like all the Uncle John's Bathroom Readers, this one has a number of memorable quotes. I think I'll grab a few as we head toward the break. Said the French statesman George Clemenceau, War is a series of catastrophes that results in a victory. Said the Roman historian Sallust, It is always easy to begin a war, but very difficult to stop one, since its beginning and end are not under the control of the same man. And of course, there's the famous quote by General Douglas MacArthur, Old soldiers never die, they just fade away which was augmented by the immortal Jackie Gleason, who once said, if you think old soldiers just fade away, just try to get into your old uniform. And on that note, let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We're going we're gonna to talk about some interesting science done right here at UC Davis in our next segment. Stick around. Stick around. 